In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Fact, everyone you know will die. Sadness, loss and grieving is a normal human emotion. It can be transformative. You cannot put a timeline on when you should feel normal. You move forward when you are ready to move forward. On today's podcast, we discuss the disorder designation of normal grief. So this week we received an email from one of our listeners and thank you for those that do reach out to us and provide feedback. It's really helpful for us to, to get better and then also provide topics of interest to you. And this particular email from uh, uh, a listener um, mentioned in there some personal things, which I don't want to touch on. Uh, maybe we can bring them up. She, she is a woman who lost um, a daughter by suicide but then she brought something to to my attention that I wasn't aware of in terms of prolonged grief disorder and how now there's some clinical trials to provide a medication on prolonged grief disorder. And I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, Raj, I'm struggling to understand what prolonged grief disorder is versus just grief. Yeah, well, you're not alone. Um, first of all, our hearts go out to the listener. Thank you for reaching out to us. All those who have uh, who are suffering with loss, uh, the pain of a loved one, particularly those who have lost a child. You know, personally, I don't know what is worse in life than losing a child. Yeah, I, and I personalize it, and that just the idea of it just it it, it I, I would break down. Even the thought of it right now makes me like really upset. Yeah, it, it's heartbreaking, and uh, you know, if I ever think about something that would happen to my life that would question my own will to live, it would be the loss of a child. So we're talking about incredible pain, uh, a pain that um, really you don't understand unless you've gone through it yourself. And this has been a controversial topic. I have you know, real genuine concern for the medicalization and patholo- uh, pathologizing of the human experience for the benefit of, um, you know, industry and to consider grief and loss, something as natural as being human, we all are going to face the loss of somebody that we love. Clearly that's going to vary greatly. There is a difference between losing a young person and losing somebody who's lived a long life. Or, I mean, just someone who um, gets ill and, and passes away over the course of a few months. You have your opportunities to share those experiences with them, say your goodbyes, almost come to terms before they pass. Whereas if someone who were to die suddenly and tragically, you're left with so much um, almost guilt of the things that you wanted to say or should have said. And for me, that's that's what I always thought, like grief Grief means that you love someone, right? And you're missing 
that loss is more that you're 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 missing out on the love that you had, or you're grieving all those lost opportunities or the missed opportunities to do the things that you should have done. So it's almost you're grieving your own self, the things that you didn't do. You're grieving the person, but you're grieving your reactions or or your your failed attempts to maybe add more experience to that person's life. Is that how you how do you interpret grief when you're in in a in a session with someone who's struggling? I, you do personalize it so and I would imagine it's personal to the the individual as well. Yeah, I wouldn't say that the word is how do you interpret it? Like mm-hmm. I I don't think of it that way. I you know, I I accept it as a human response to loss. Um and reflection of attachment, bonding and love. You got into a lot of details that exist um, that we ha- that I want to get into because it's also understanding, you know, grief to be transformative. Mm-hmm. You know, something that doesn't have an arbitrary deadline on it. And when you start to think about disordering the grief process, you're putting uh, you're putting categories. You're making it a, a categorical data in some way where there has to be some um, boundaries. And one of those would be like the time boundary, right? So it's almost saying it's normal to experience this for a particular time. But then if you keep experiencing it to some extent, to some degree, well, then it's prolonged. So we as a medical community get to define the time limit for your grief as if there is something that is just universally expected for all people, not scientific. Mm -hmm. And then we try to uh, rate or assess the impairment in functioning or the personal experience of the individual to determine whether that is normal or abnormal. So just saying these things out loud right now make me feel sick to my stomach. So let me get this straight. And so my father passed away two years ago. Now he lived a long life. But let's just say, for example, that- How old was he when he was he, eight, he was 89. So he lived way beyond the life expectancy. Correct. So for me, my grieving obviously was hard, very sad, but I also felt a sense of that. But let's just pretend for a second that it took me <clears throat> almost six months and I was you know, having, I don't know, very down. And I went to someone and they sat there. They could actually look at me and say, well- you might be suffering from this. Is that what we're saying now, that this is a new diagnosis for grief? Well, Can you just go clarify that? Because that's... Is it okay just to start identifying what the criteria are? Yeah. So there's there's criteria for prolonged grief disorder. For anything to be identified as a disorder, trying to identify it as a medical condition, you have to develop criteria for it, right? Okay. So... The medicalization of mental distress is uh, is developed through the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. There's five of them now, and a revised version is about to come out. The controversy in the field is that they have included prolonged grief disorder. And as we will discuss today, there are drug trials underway for the treatment of a made-up condition. <laughs> prolonged grief disorder okay so let's just go through the criteria we've done this through other podcasts i don't think we're going to in this topic we're going to be um 
making fun of the condition in the same way where we made fun of how easy it is to get a diagnosis of like depression, for example. Yeah. Um, because we're the, the subject doesn't allow it, right? Yeah, I, I just um, I think the important thing is how would you distinguish this from any other grief? I'm struggling with that. Well, you're getting stuck on this because uh, I think you just think logically and reasonably. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and if you try to understand the the mental health field through just a a viewpoint of like logically trying to discern this type of stuff and reason through it, you will ultimately experience the confusion that you're experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. How can something that is considered so normal and adaptive and part of the human experience be medicalized and developed criteria around it and make it an illness? I still, I still want clarification. So yearning for a loved one. Let's I'll go through the criteria. I mean, that's... We haven't even got there <laughs> uh, all yet. Right, we all right. haven't even got right. there yet. Okay. All right. Let's start with criterion A, the death at least 12 months ago of a person who was close to the bereaved. Okay. For children, it's just six months. All right. So they're saying for 12 months, you can experience all of these things that I'm going to talk about. But after 12 months, now you start entering into this realm of something could be disordered. So there's the arbitrary deadline of one year. So they're saying one year, feel whatever you feel, act in any way you act, be impaired in any way impaired. But listen, you've hit the one year mark. Yeah, you're celebrating the death of your loved one. You feel better now. Like that's such horseshit. I'm sorry. Because when on the one year anniversary of losing someone is when you it's almost when you, you grieve them again. You remember them the most, yeah. sure. So that that's what's particularly heinous for me. Is the, is the limitation, the identification of this arbitrary timeline. Um, and this is where psychiatry has lost all credibility in my mind. You know, this is without a doubt just a, um, you know, a profession that has been aligned with the pharmaceutical industry. This is about creating customers for life. This is part of the anger that comes out because they're going to look to drug this for people after one year. Okay. Criterion B here. Since the death the development of a persistent grief response characterized by one or both of the following symptoms. You know how I feel about emotions as symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. right? Boom, right into, it's what medical illnesses are are defined as, right? Sore throat, uh, swollen glands. Now emotions are symptoms, which have been present most days to a clinically significant degree In addition, the symptoms have occurred nearly every day for at least a month. One, intense yearning, longing for the deceased person. Now, let's just sit back for a second and uh, understand that from the lens of a a symptom to be identified as a disorder. So they're they're scaling, they're, they're bringing like almost like a Likert scale to yearning. I mean, that's how they're judging it because they said extreme. Yearning versus yearning versus low yearning. In, intense yearning or longing for the well, deceased person. Now tell me. Intense. Okay? Sean, we have some stories to, to share about loss and we will. But let's just think about um, the idea of the loss of a child. Uh, let's say you're 13 months in the loss of your child. Would intense yearning or longing for the deceased person, or let's say you know even a widow or, or a widower, could you even imagine beginning to think about that as something that is abnormal? Absolutely not. No, no. 
Let's go to two. Preoccupation with thoughts or memories of the deceased person. (laughs) My goodness. This is the field that I'm currently finding myself working in. And there are going, once this DSM-5 TR, which is a revised version, comes to market, you will be training clinicians as the, you know, and they're usually young. So you're not talking about people who have a lot of uh, life experience. They're going to be indoctrinated into the idea that this is a disorder and deviates from what is the large-scale experience of human beings when they're facing tragic loss and grieving a loved one. Let's go to uh, criteria C. Since the death, at least three of the following symptoms have been present most days to a clinically significant degree. In addition, the symptoms have occurred nearly every day for at least one month. Now there's eight. You only need three to meet the criteria of the disorder. Hey, and listen, um, if you only have to identify three experiences from someone after 12 months, then you're much more likely to get a larger pool of candidates for your disorder Mm -hmm. and a larger pool of candidates to be able to be eligible for a drug. Mm -hmm. Number one. Remember, only three. Identity disruption. Feeling as though part of oneself has died since the death. Again, this makes me want to scream, yell, vomit, um, lash out. It's because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the loss of a child. Right. And uh, I've had experience, obviously, as a, as a clinician working with people who've lost a child. One of my best friends lost a child. Mm-hmm. Part of you does die. That's your child. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all parents here. Kelly, Sean, imagine losing your child. Mm-mm. A part of me would be lost. Absolutely. There's a mental block that happens when we try to even imagine such a thing because it's so painful. Part of you dies because a child is part of you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Sean and I had a, uh, our sister, you know, lost an infant. And if she was here, she would tell you part of her dies. It doesn't mean she can't live. doesn't mean she can't love. But part of you dies because that child is part of you. Especially you're the mother who carried that baby for nine months. Yeah. It is literally part of you. This is heinous. I don't want to be part of a specialty or a medical specialty or a science-based field. When this, when this is identified as a symptom of something that's abnormal. Number two, marked sense of disbelief about the death. Marked sense of disbelief. So if you lose a child, when you lose a child, it's, it's, you, you can't believe it. So there is a disbelief there because it happens out of what you would say is the, the traditional way of living a life, moving on and getting married and moving on to your... How, how is this abnormal? 
It's not abnormal. In fact, you have to go through that disbelief. Why why would it be a symptom of a disorder? Well, because everybody's going to go through it. Well, you know, I think what they're doing here is they're saying like, okay, you can experience the disbelief, but you got 12 months. (laughs) Let's go on to the next one. Avoidance of reminders that the person is dead. So avoidance of the reminders. So either you're thinking about them all day long or you're avoiding it. Either way, you're getting a point there, <laughs> right? Either way, right? They're trying to pathologize it. All right, this is time for our, for our story. Okay. Y- you can talk about experience with the loss of our father. Yeah. You know, just, I mean, it, it happened suddenly. It happened on his 50th birthday. I remember getting the phone call at work and being so confused um, I thought it was our, our grandfather that passed away. And um, and then I had to drive home, and I was living in Philadelphia at the time, and I went back to my apartment, my house, and grabbed a bunch of clothes in confusion, not sure what I was going to do, and then came home to a house, and, and he was still there. Um, I was shocked by it because the, uh, you know, the coroner had showed up, and he was, just, he was just in the house, and we were all sitting outside. And it took me forever um, to to, I, I don't, I don't think, to be honest with you, I mean, still in disbelief a bit. I am. I am. uh, um, This this came out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, uh, It was completely sudden. I'll explain it from my perspective. And, um, uh, still to this day, I mean, I think about him every day, but I think, I don't think about him in terms of the loss. I think about him in terms of, you know, the good experiences or the values that are in me and the type of person that I am, um, that is a result of, know the way that we were raised and the way we grew up and I'm, I'm grateful um but i'm also i think about my life i've experienced a whole nother life that he was never a part of you know i moved three thousand miles away to the west coast met my wife i have a child they don't know who he is and you might not have ever done that if he was still around no i wouldn't have and, that, and when i always talk about the things that would you change anything um all those bad experiences that have happened in your life lead you down a path um had he not passed i would have never moved to california yeah so i would have never met my wife i would never have my child so we're coming up on 20 years the 20 year anniversary will be in september yep so i I think what made this uh we were i mean we were in our early 20s and i had a uh, one-year-old my daughter madison was one years old and I remember calling him that morning, which I now know he was probably dead mm-hmm. on on our foyer in our kitchen. Called him that morning and left a, at that point it was on the answering machine. So it was always on the answering machine uh, at our house, you know, just wishing him happy birthday. It was his 50th birthday. That was in the morning. And... I was coaching high school football, working as a juvenile probation officer, newly married, and had a one-year-old. I remember I had a a game that night. Oh, yeah. I remember. And uh, I got a call from mom. Your dad had a heart attack. I said, is he okay? She said, no, he's gone. Come home now. And that shock that's disbelief and you go into shock Mm -hmm. and you drive home 
you know, I drove home because I was locally in the area. And you don't know, like, you're thinking that he's in the hospital. You know, like, he was rushed to the hospital and, you know, he died there. But she came home uh, and found him mm-hmm. dead. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, you know, it was a widowmaker. It was that coronary blockage in the uh, carotid artery. So it went boom, you know, fast. And what I remember, and there's, this is where there's kind of some experiences or feelings of guilt, is for a couple of days leading up to it, he had a massive headache and he was sleeping more than, than usual. So the, some of the symptoms were there. And I think from my mom's perspective that there's some guilt there because, you know, she didn't, you know, ask him to go get checked out. Right. And he was not someone who goes to the doctors a lot. And he tried to work out in the morning, you know, and it's, it's weird when I don't feel my best, I try to work out too, because working out makes me feel better. And that's probably what killed him. Well, I, I remember a certain way where um, I think our mother had said something to him about going to the doctor, requesting a test. And the doctor said, well, why don't you wait until after your 50th birthday? Because that test will be covered by insurance. Wait, really? Yeah, I do recall that. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was, there was a shockness. There was a shock to that whole experience. I went and coached that night, you know, almost like I couldn't even handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also felt a commitment to the kids I was coaching. I was a defensive coordinator. I was, you know, the one calling the defenses. And I remember going to the locker room and each kind of coach says a little something before you go out to the locker room and I broke down and you know it's like it hit me there but I think we can talk about the subsequent years Sean after that about talking about the grief process and that's in still losing a parent there's although he was quite young 50 is very young there is uh it's different I think if you lose a spouse Mm-hmm. young when you lose a child young because we're all expected the natural order of things is to lose a parent and we were at least adults we were young so there was a lot to be lost especially you know when you think about you're not just losing what you have you're losing this idea of a future you know so I was like now my my children don't have a grandfather on my side of the family they don't they never met him. You know, Madison was one, doesn't remember him. So we have pictures of her with him. But like it's, it's the loss of that future. You grieve the loss of that future. But for this third criteria, avoidance of reminders that that person is dead, I refused to go back to the, our house. Never wanted to go back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe only did a few times in the course of that year um, because it was painful. I mean, that's where he where he died and it was all the reminders and you want to be able to function and be able to do the things in your day-to-day life and being faced with the reminders creates a lot of emotional distress Mm -hmm. so you want to you want to choose how you grieve and when you grieve and again I was working coaching I was also going to school newly married and had a Mm one-year-old so it's like did even at that time was I giving myself the time to, to, to grieve and you want to choose it. But the avoidance of reminders that the person is dead is, you know, identified as a symptom. You want to know num- what number four is? Yeah. Intense emotional pain related to the death. Here we go with the word intense again too. But it is this, it is the 
And this has been the slippery slope in society. It is the pathologizing of emotional pain. Um, communicating to the public that there is a threshold of what you should experience and not experience. And if you experience it outside that threshold, arbitrarily defined, no one can really articulate it because how do we define intense? But it's that it's facilitating the judgment of your own experience. And we know what facilitates healing of many mental health conditions, especially grief, is actually the full emotional experience into that pain. Right? Not to avoid it. Not to avoid it. Mm -hmm. And so identifying intense emotional pain as one of the symptom criteria of a disorder gives you an idea of what they how they view actual quote unquote treatment. How would they treat a grief disorder? How would you even just begin to think about it? What would a treatment how, be? How do they? How well if you're gonna identify grief as a disorder and obviously that is to develop a medical treatment around it. What what to, is the to, goal of the treatment? To decrease the intensity of the symptoms. Yeah. So it would be to try to numb out the human experience in some way. So remember the movie The Notebook and how yeah. there was Alzheimer's there? So my dad passed away from that. And um, the movie was on about three months ago, and I was just sitting there perusing through channels, and it was on. The very last scene, I start crying hysterically. Are you telling me, because I'm experiencing an intense emotion two years after, you know, again, my father lived a full life and did not, not pass young, but I'm still experiencing intense emotion and yearning. So you're saying that I could then be diagnosed with this brand new disorder. And, and this is a, the American Psychiatric Association. And so it's really important that we differentiate the fields. I do not in any way um, associate myself with this type of rhetoric uh, or this science base, if we even want to call it a science. The American Psychiatric Association is a medical specialty. It's an association to support uh, clinical psychiatry. And they're the ones who are developing this. But it, um, it's a powerful organization because it reverberates into the entire mental health field and, more importantly, into popular culture. Will general practitioners eventually be able to diagnose as well? Is that going to be immediate? They do right now. They do already? Right. They do right now. So we get 70, upwards of 70 to 75% of psychiatric drugs are prescribed by your primary care physician. Purposely, of course, um, from the pharmaceutical industry to increase the sale of their drugs. But yeah, intense emotional pain now as a, as a symptom. You're, uh, since there's nothing more normal than grief, people die every day. Think about your customer base. It's the world. It's the yeah. world. Yep. Um, Is there are there any other um, criteria? Yeah. Yep. We'll go to number five: difficulty integrating one's relationships and activities after the death. So problems engaging with friends, pursuing interests, or planning for the future. See that that can be externally related because when when someone loses somebody, the friends almost avoid it, right? Because they don't want to. They want to give their their friend the time to heal so they avoid because avoiding from them means that they don't have to confront their own issues with death and loss. So it could have nothing to do with you if you've lost somebody. It could have your, your social network just wanting to avoid you. 
Kind of like the whole, hey, let's just give them some time. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. But again, the, the American Psychiatric Association would say, well, you have 12 months to do that. <laughs> let's go to uh, number six. And this is where I think we can, reasonable people can say, what the hell? I'm confused now. So number six is emotional numbness. So if number four is in intense emotional pain as a symptom, number six is emotional numbness. And we know that someone who's actually going through grief is going to vacillate between the both of, a, both of those experiences. They're, they're, they're saying that there's some normal middle that is neither intense pain nor numbness, which is complete bullshit. And what this stuff does, it, it causes confusion and internal confusion. Mm -hmm. So the person is, is judging their own experience from a lens of how it's communicated to them in society. And then you go to a doctor and you communicate your experience based on what you've learned about what is normal. And you're also limited by language. So there's only so many words to describe your own experience. And, you know, people struggle in being able to do that. And so basically you're going to a doctor and saying, I lost a loved one and my life has been disrupted. I'm in a lot of pain. I'm not sleeping. And now they're going to have a list of drugs to be able to prescribe to you that are going to be primarily related to trying to, um, you know, detach you from your emotional experience, numb or sedate you. So understand the slippery slope. This isn't new for this disorder. This is a lot of other disorders too that have been identified that the, the treatment for such conditions is sedating you and numbing you so one of the criteria is emotional numbness and one of the solutions is to give a drug that numbs that's, that's correct that's fantastic yeah. really that's good stuff and you can imagine just uh, even a general practitioner sitting there you come into the office hey listen you know i lost someone it's been a while i just you know i'm not sleeping oh and one of the criteria would be well are you experiencing any emotion you might sit there and say well i've kind of blocked out emotions i'm just trying to move on oh really you've blocked them out so have you have any emotions? Well, I have some emotion. Oh, are those emotions intense? Do you feel strong emotions? Mm -hmm. Like I could just see the guiding talk through this. And then finally the, the conclusion being no matter what you can be diagnosed. Yes. Yeah, I think what you're going to see is the development of the checklists. We did it here the PHQ nine for Sean and yeah. we're quickly able to identify him as depressed. Again, it's just the, it's going to be the checklist. The symptoms are going to be widely applicable to every single person who has experienced loss. And you'll be able to provide that person with a medical illness. You can't sell drugs unless it's a medical illness. And isn't it amazing? Didn't we bring that up? There are two things. You said it a podcast way early that there are two things everyone will experience. One is loss. Mm -hmm. Everyone will experience it. And now they're, they're, they're marketing loss. What's the next criteria? Feeling that life is meaningless as a result of the death. I could do, you lose a child. You lose a, a child, child. Or, or a loved one. Yeah, let's, I mean, let's use our mother as an example, right? She raised three children, was married, husband talking about, you know, what the future could be about, you know, retirement and travel and doing all those things that they put off to raise three children and now you lose a husband and all those things you had in your mind about what your future may be is gone. That's a good point. I can even take it a step further. I think um, 
part of a, a normal lifespan and the various challenges you go through even without loss, you sometimes question the meaning of life. <laughs> and now, of course, you lose somebody that you, you loved dearly and pictured your life with and the purpose of your life for, and you take that away, it is, you should be questioning how meaningful life is yeah, to you. Then you need to define a new purpose in your life. And that doesn't happen over the course of six months or 12 months. It could happen three or four years later when you realize... It take longer than that. What, well, I'm, yeah, I'm just arbitrarily right? giving it's arbitrary number, one year. We yeah, might as well do... It's, it's 20 years since our father passed. Right. And like I, I went up to... There's a rock. Um, he went to Lehigh University, played football, was an All-American, all uh, graduated in 74. And when he passed suddenly... His whole, you know, group of friends that would still kind of go to games um, would tailgate, and they honored him by putting a rock uh, by the um, the pavilion where they would all hang out. And um, I had never been up there, uh, so I was in the Bethlehem area yesterday, and we drove up there, and I went and looked at it and took a picture of it, and of course, you know, felt the things that I felt almost, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Right. And my son was there now, and he kind of put his hand on the rock and started petting it. And I just, I couldn't help but, like, get choked up at that moment. Were those emotions intense? N no, they weren't <laughs> intense because, you know, enough, 20 years ago, I, I would have, like, probably fallen to my knees. Right. 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 But enough time has moved on um, that I've, I've, I've grown based on the experiences. And I, I don't feel that same way anymore, but I still, still miss them. I still get upset and I don't want that to ever go away because that would mean I'm dead. Right. right. That's a really good point too. Um, someone who's lost a spouse, someone who's lost a child. There's not a desire to feel detached in my opinion. Um, nor would I think that's healthy. If we think of grief as transformative, mm -hmm. meaning that um, it changes you forever and it should. And as time goes by, and as you develop new experiences and you grow, um, that experience to the loss of the loved one shifts and changes in various ways. Yes. Um, and I think the first few years, I'm not putting 12 months on it, years after that loss and the pain from that are part of that transformation. It's almost a, a necessary and required passage of time um, that the learning that takes place throughout that kind of more begins to kind of define uh, what life means to you now and moving forward. Some of some examples of that are, you know, I've worked with um, parents who've lost a child maybe um, to a, a rare disease or to even an accident uh, or to um, medical negligence and part of their transformative process is to find meaning in their life, in their life, because they were there for only a, a, a for a period of time, and then they were gone. Especially when you know it's a child, and part of their purpose then is to help prevent um, maybe needless loss in the future, whether it's from uh, you know funding some research to advance the the treatments or the discovery of some rare conditions. Or to, um, you know, develop guidelines or safety guidelines to protect the welfare of, of, of a child. Um, just to develop foundations 
in that person's name. It's like, how can other people be helped based on what we went through? And that's part of that transformative process. Mm -hmm. Can I, I'll share something that our, our sister who lost an infant shared an image that to me best represented what grief and loss is. And it was just like a little cartoon drawing, right? And it said, this is how most people imagine grief to be. And imagine a vessel, like a little uh, container. And within there is a rock. And that rock represents grief. And most people believe over time your vessel stays the same. And then that rock will get smaller. And your grief will shrink over time. But in reality, it's the opposite. Your your grief stays the same, but your vessel grows, Mm. right? The vessel gets larger. That grief stays the same. It's a good way of looking at it. And it's through the experiences and putting yourself out there and moving forward to have make it a transformative process where your vessel grows, which is your life experience, and your it becomes your new purpose. Right? To me, I just I I love that visual because there was no words to it. Right? It was just like this is how it is. Yeah, that's a good share. I like that. And the final symptom where they only need three is intense loneliness as a result of the death. Again, with the word intense. Yeah. So can I, um, I want to read something. There was an article in the New York Times. Prolonged grief, a mental disorder, or a natural process. And I got... Um, Who wrote this? It's, it's an editorial? Um, it's from the New York Times. Um, I don't have the author because what, because you ha- it's behind a, a paywall. Okay. But what I what I got was uh, the letters from the readers to the editor, mm. and um, what I'd like to do is just read one of the letters. It has been more than six years since my wife died. I balk at reframing prolonged grief as a mental disorder. It is not depression, nor merely an emotional state that one passes through to emerge on the other side as one was before. Grief is transformative, and I, might, and I am not the same person I was before my beloved wife died. For the first several months after her death, I was consumed by overwhelming emotions. With the passage of time, I was able to regain my normal functioning. I was able to work to socialize with others, and to laugh. But beneath the surface, I retain feelings of loneliness, sadness, and a certain emptiness. I return to an empty house. Sleep alone in an empty bed and prepare meals to dine alone at my empty table. These are existential facts, and that I should feel the pain of her absence is not a mental disorder, but a reality that will remain with me for the rest of my life. The cliche that everyone grieves in his or her way is assuredly true. That the psychiatric establishment has now pathologized prolonged grief is not only stigmatizing, but also imperious. When they develop a pill that will bring my wife back, I will reconsider my (laughs) position. Joseph Truman, Hackensack, New Jersey. Well said. I would add, this is evil. This is pure evil right now. 
Can we, before, can we move into the treatment yet or can we? There's a couple other criteria okay, that, I, that I think are just as I'm, nefarious and uh, confusing right. and uh, represent not only um, the problems with diagnosing prolonged grief as a disorder, but the diagnostic um, criteria for most mental health conditions. Uh, the disturbance causes clinically significant distress or impairment in social occupation or other important areas of functioning. Again, it's very, very difficult to define when no one is the same again, right? right? And uh, after the loss of of um, a loved one, maybe you get back to to work and you're and you're doing fine there. But to say that maybe your social functioning is not going to decline or decrease in some way for an extended period of time as part of that transformative process is just. Um, I don't think realistic and again, confuses people again to what is normal. Right. And it's that judgment of the experience I think is what makes people worse. This one is, is also difficult because um, the, this is criteria E, the duration and severity of the bereavement reaction exceeds expected social, cultural, or religious norms for the individual's culture and context. And uh, you know, the things that I think is, most important for our listeners to know is there is no just simple um, expected norm. It all depends. You know, it depends on the nature of the relationship, your relationship to that person, the age of the person, how they passed, um, what your life is like without them, uh, social support, uh, your faith, your religion, how you you know think about loss. There's so many complex variables that interact to say that there's one um, expected um, reaction. Or duration. Or, that was the duration, du- right? Yeah. So you could have two families, one moved elsewhere, right, into a different culture. This, you know, in the United States, they lose their uh, sibling. They both are reacting the same way, but in the United States they can get diagnosed in this. They have more time to get diagnosed. Yeah. That's, Is that what you're saying? That's such a good point, right? Like culture and context really matter. You know, we have this way about us in the United States. It's kind of your pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of approach. So yeah, get on with it. You know, that's, that's uniquely kind of uh, Western right? or uh, definitely some European uh, American, uh, the UK, the United States. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the last one, the symptoms are not better explained by, and then it's the disorders the DSM has already created that you know we have concern with. Major depressive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, or another mental disorder, uh, or attributable, attributed to other psychological factors such as substance abuse or another medical condition. So, so isn't know, that just them setting it up so that, okay, well, we can't diagnose you with this, but we can diagnose you with this, sort of? Is that the gist of it where they're tying? So take post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Um, you're saying you're saying if I go in and, and they go through the criteria list, let's just say they have a checklist, I don't qualify for this particular disorder, but like I could, could qualify, qualify for, for, some, another, for right? another one. Yeah, so, right? yeah, and Sean brought this up earlier. Imagine Kelly um, over a period of a year, you know, you sit with your wife who's diagnosed with terminal illness and you watch her deteriorate. There's no doubt in my mind, after three months of that loss, you're still gonna be, you're gonna experience what the DSM identifies as post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, Because it's gonna be, you know, you're gonna be haunted by 
the deterioration of your wife and watching her pass and die. And you're going to experience a lot of those symptoms. And there's such overlap between what is normal grief and what they have decided to determine as a post-traumatic stress reaction. All right. That's a lot to process. And so say now we, we get diagnosed with this. Now talk to me about what happens next. Are there already clinical trials of, you know, drugs going on? Are there, what's this next step? Because I can already see the writing in the wall on this one. Yeah. I do want to thank our listener for reaching out to us. We're going to protect her, her name and the details of what, what she went through, but I hope she's listening now. Thank you for the, the article. And obviously this was on our radar for quite some time. We needed to do some investigation, but I think we really felt uh, inspired with that, with mm-hmm. that email. Uh, the article that was sent is now, now Trexone treatment for prolonged grief disorder, a study protocol for a randomized triple blinded placebo controlled trial. Oh, God. What is now Trexone? Could you explain that? It's currently used to treat alcohol and opioid dependence. So, it, wait, um, when you're like on heroin and stuff, what's that drug that they put you on? It's not that, right? Um, I forget what it's called. That the one I just watched that. Um, not the drug, not the stuff that they inject in you to wake you up from something. No, 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 no. Narcan? Uh, no, not that. Okay. Um, uh, it'll come to me. I'm sorry. Carry on. It'll come <laughs> yeah, it'll come to me too. Sorry. Um, they're conceptualizing prolonged grief as a disorder of attachment and craving and yearning for the deceased whom they are separated. And the primary gateway symptom required for this diagnosis is yearning, persistent longing, pining for, preoccupation with. And the way that patients experience this is to, quote unquote, this is from the article, crave their loved ones after they have died due to the positive reinforcement provided by their memories of loved ones. The absence of, a, of the deceased creates a feeling of withdrawal. Missing the person, feeling focused on his or her absence, feeling like life is not pleasurable and actually painful without the deceased, sorrow, resentment, and agitation at being denied the support and security, meaning, and identity they, uh, the deceased provided. Based on evidence supporting the association between prolonged grief disorder, and neurobiological correlates of reward and addiction, we hypothesize that treatments for addiction might prove successful where those for major depressive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder have failed. So they're marketing this as an addiction to the someone that you love dearly in your life and now lost and now you're addicted And here is their hypothesis that diminishing the reward derived from reminiscing about the deceased by a drug. Um, Basically, the pharmacological approach is to dampen the benefits of social bonding while reducing the yearning and craving they have for a deceased person. So where my head goes is we, we all need to process in order to move forward. If you're taking a medication to numb yourself. It's not called a medication. It's called drugs. Let's call it what it is. Medication is this uh, idea that it's medicinal, like that it's healing. So if you're taking drugs to numb yourself away from these normal emotions, at some point you need to come to terms with it. 
I would imagine taking the drugs prevents you from coming to terms with it and moving forward. There's no doubt. Everything we know about the recovery and creating a life after the loss of a loved one includes the full emotional exposure to and experience of that loss and the discussion and communication and, and maintaining to, and the to memory. Connect, and to connect with other other people or, or have experiences because new experiences will help you. We are social beings. Yeah. We are social beings. But if you're numbing yourself, well, he, all you're doing is cutting yourself off from those opportunities. In the email, just based off of what you just said, it also states that studies have shown that naltrexone uh, reduces feelings of social connection, especially to one's closest others. By the way, the drug I was thinking of was methadone. And, methadone. and that is not this. Yeah. Okay. Methadone is to reduce the cravings. Um, yes. It's a yes. blocker of some sort. But it's opiates. also highly addictive yeah. and really like withdrawals from methadone are supposed to be brutal, um, which is why people go on methadone for life. So you're over, overly emotional, we're going to drug you. you. You're not showing an emotion, we're going to drug you. And by the way, if you, we're going to give you a drug that keeps you away from social connection. That's wonderful. Kelly used the word evil. It is evil. Um, I think they're trying to create um, robots. I think they are, they're trying. There's, there's so many things about kind of culture that I'm concerned about. Uh, which in includes, um, you know, trying to decrease the social connectedness um, of of the American family, targeting the American family, like taking um, a lot of what would have, you know, in the previous previous generations, like spoken about in terms of um, like the value of like of love within a family and purpose in family and then shifting the way that humans relate to each other. Um, the pharmaceutical industry is, has, has their footprint on so many aspects of American society that we, I don't even think we've gotten into the depth of it, but the medical establishment, which has traditionally kind of been revered, you know, there are, you know, really bright people who go into medicine and we rely upon our physicians to keep us alive, to treat us when we're ill. And so there is a social trust that has been developed between um, our culture and the medical establishment. And that trust is so strong, and they are an authority figure, that we have this really strong bias to trust whatever they tell us as absolute truth and in our best interest with the idea that it's backed by really strong science that they themselves couldn't understand, are not educated to understand, or would re don't have the time to be able to understand the depth and the nuance. And my concern is, is that, that people don't really understand um, that your average medical professional that you are going to be interacting with has very little knowledge about a lot of the topics that we're talking about when it comes to your mental health, that they are just relying on quick pamphlets that are provided to them or CEU units that are sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry. 
and they have been brought up in a Western medicine culture where they have been taught to view disease to be treated by drugs. Not to understand what is natural, normal, um, what contributes to disease and illness in human beings, but rather to just treat the symptoms and the symptoms being the newest drug. Rarely are we talking about in our society about the normal and expected levels of, of emotional distress, pain, deterioration of the body, um, the type of lifestyles, all the other complex factors that influence how we feel and how we live and that create disease or learning from previous cultures or current cultures that are outside of Western ideas of medicine that are, that are healing. Um, and so the medicalization of human distress is uniquely Western. It is uniquely United States. And it, we cannot differentiate that from what is our, our capitalistic society and uh, you know, trying to benefit, our industry trying to benefit off of people's struggle. And so hopefully a, a podcast today when we start talking about how they turn something as normal as the pain of loss and they are trying to financially benefit from it through a disorder and an industry will be created around this right we, we will do you have any doubt that we won't be looking at this as another multi-billion dollar industry um, treating prolonged disorder in the same way that we are now treating depression well, no i mean because the, the our culture right now is uh you have a problem well there is there a drug for that is there a drug for that people the question is 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 there a drug for it instead of is there a nice day coming up where i can go outside is there you know something i can change is there a run is there an exercise i can do when you bring up those types of things the drug seems like an easier way to handle a situation and but if you have the entire let's look at the business side of this but right? that's what i so mean so you're a you're addressable market um so uh, in that White House uh, study about depression, it said like one in five people um, right now in the United States is depressed. So right there you have your addressable market as like 20% of the adult population. And then when you think about how you can grow that addressable market, well, you come up with a new drug for grief. You know what your addressable market is? 100%. Yeah. It's the entire population. Like all of a sudden anybody could fit that profile of going on a drug for loss. It's, I, think, it's, I think it's scary. I mean, cause I don't know. It just thought this one, this one really bothers me more so than others. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think there's a, there has to be a call for a movement for change in our culture. And if you're a physician out there and you're listening to this podcast or any one of our listeners who intimately know uh, a physician please have these conversations with them because they're going to need to protect us from going down this road um already like voices like mine are attempting to be discredited although i think it's very reasonable discussion and argument that we're providing on on uh, how the mental health industry has just is completely out of control the power of this idea of seeing a life as trying to feel less, because that's what it comes down to, viewing your mental well-being as feeling less, having less emotions, 
as somehow a, a, a better life. I can 100% guarantee you that is not a better life. It is not a better life. That emotions, especially the powerful ones related to grief, can be transformative and necessary for you to create the life that you're meant to live. I was thinking about all the great art in the world, you know, the writings, the music, the paintings. So much of that comes from grief and loss. You imagine if those, you know, famous pieces were numbed by a drug, well, how the world sure. would not have any of those? Emotion emotion is art. Emotion yeah. is color. Emotion is life. I mean, that's exactly what emotions are our, our, our emotions do. And they bring amazing things to this world. Mm-hmm. To sit there and think that, you know, an entity may, you know, purposely nefariously wants to completely quell emotions because they want to make a profit is really ridiculous. And all the accomplishments that once someone moves forward after they've they've gone through that grieving process, how many really inspiring things are accomplished? You know, someone going out and you know, running a marathon to raise money on behalf of that memory or hiking up to the tallest, you know, peak in, on a mountain to, you know, honor them. That, it should be about living life but you need to experience that loss in order to move forward and be motivated and inspired to do something great, not numb yourself and then cut yourself off from any social connection. And grieving, grieving can be inspirational. Yeah. It just sometimes hides itself a bit, but it, it's inspiring. Yep. It's inspiring. It brings back memory. It brings back hope. It brings back everything that you've ever learned in your life. And yes, you know, I still cry from my father who lived a full life mm-hmm. and I will continue to do so one as thing often that as I, I can. One thing that I love that my sister and her husband are doing with the loss of their, their daughter is every year on, on her birthday and the, and the time that she had passed is they have kind of gone through and, and looked for a family that might be struggling with something either through like a GoFundMe and they ask everybody in their, you know, friends and family to make a donation to that family in memory of their daughter. And these are families that she has no connection to. So it just comes out of the blue. Mm. And to me, like that is the great greatest way to honor the loss of someone and add positivity to the world instead of negativity. Um, it's just, I love it. I do too. Yep. And it's the, the power of empathy, mm-hmm. right? So where that comes from is this, this connection to your pain and caring about other people, being able to feel what they feel and wanting to, to help them. And that's that nature of community. It's the nature of attachment and connection. And you don't, we don't want to lose that strength of empathy. To feel intensely for oneself is then also to understand that feeling in another. And that does drive us to to help and assist those who are in need, those who are struggling, those who are in pain, those who are in areas of uh, around the world, famine or war, you know, the world becomes a a better place from human empathy. Mm -hmm. And we want to be very careful of the drugs that are being prescribed, which are targeting brain processes 
that have emotional numbing effects, sedative effects, which are going to interfere and impair one's ability to be able to socially bond and connect. That is dangerous, absolutely dangerous. We don't want a society of people who are emotionally detached from each other. And unfortunately, if you're following the trajectory of this, what are we actually seeing in society? More and more people isolated and emotionally detached from each other. As we are continuing to prescribe more and more drugs that actually provide this purpose. And, and listen, we can get into this in another podcast. People tend to think of SSRIs, which are the typical antidepressants, as a drug that doesn't or that has little negative consequences to it, that is somehow um, improving positive emotions. And that's not the case, and that's not the, that's not the evidence base. Uh, in fact, it is more, if it's going to do anything, it is going to depress or dampen um, emotional states, including negative ones. But when you start looking at uh, at certain articles and in forensic psychology and looking into the background of things like school shootings um, or violence from behavior from people who did not exhibit that prior, but did after they started the pathway towards drugs, when you start targeting natural processes that occur within the brain, you're trying to like impact how something like um, serotonin is produced in the brain. You, there are consequences that are unforeseen. And you are playing God in some way, um, in an experimental way, with the human condition. And that is not the same as advancing um, medical treatments that... Um, that target disease because when it comes to mental health we don't have that evidence that there is a diseased state so the actual drugs that are being used are actually creating a dysfunction a brain dysfunction and by creating that brain dysfunction you have you are having an effect on the human experience uniquely what it means to be human and i and i i don't believe that's an advancement in society and as evidenced by trying to talk about grief as a medical illness or a disorder, we are seeing the slippery slope. We are seeing the trajectory and the overall ultimate goal of this, which is financially driven, potentially even politically driven for other reasons. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.